I knew from the moment the test became positive that I would keep the baby. What I didn't know is how difficult pregnancy would be. At five weeks, I was already missing class because of extreme vomiting. I couldn't keep any food or water down. You know that feeling when you're about to throw up? You get really clammy and you can feel your stomach churning. You hardly make it to the bathroom, that feeling. HG, or otherwise known as hyperemesis gravidarum, is that feeling 24-7. At least that's how I experienced it. I threw up at least 10 times a day until the day I gave birth. It became second nature to me to put one hand my stomach and the other hand on the wall, clutching it for support as, my, as I was about to throw up, hobbling to the toilet, holding my hair up with one hand and leaning on the floor with the other. Almost immediately, they prescribed me some nausea medication, but it didn't help at all. Around this time, I began to worry that something was wrong. I was missing tons of class. I kept having to send my professors doctor's notes and notes from the ER. And from the beginning, I was terrified of losing her. Doctors have told me that because of my chronic illnesses, it would be difficult to become pregnant and it would be difficult to sustain a pregnancy. My mast cell specialist also told me that a lot of patients with mast cell also have hyperemesis gravidarum. They also often have premature births and preeclampsia, which I had all three of those things. I was feeling worried about my health causing a miscarriage and it really sucked to constantly hear things like, it'll be a miracle if you deliver a healthy baby. And are you sure you're ready to be a mom? Anyway, the first trimester, especially weeks five through 10 were, and I'm not exaggerating, a living hell for me. I couldn't escape. All I wanted to do was be free of my body. Nothing would help. Most days I couldn't get out of bed or the bathroom. My pots worsened, so I kept passing out and becoming extremely dehydrated. I ended up in the hospital several times due to extreme dehydration, fainting, and one time, sudden vision loss. I All of a sudden, I couldn't read my textbook or read my phone messages, and I usually have 20-20 vision. Throwing up became my life. Throwing up stomach acid wasn't abnormal, but when I started puking up fresh red blood off and on for throughout the afternoon and night, I had to go to the ER again. I had to take an Uber to the emergency room. I was there 9 p.m. till 5 a.m. I wrote in my journal, I was all alone last night at the hospital. Well, except for you. I keep reminding myself of that, that you're with me so I'm not alone. My hardest exam is Monday, but I've been, un- I've been unable to study. I graduate next Saturday. I'll be eight weeks pregnant. You are very wanted. Please don't go. Schoolwork was far from my mind. More than once on my way to class, I had to throw up in some bushes on campus, unable to make it to a bathroom. I knew since I had endometriosis and mast cell activation syndrome that my chance of having a miscarriage was quite high. So that plus the fact that I was sicker than I had ever been before and 
so underweight the doctors were considering giving me a feeding tube. All of this led to extreme anxiety over having a miscarriage. I felt anxious about losing her the entire time. At my graduation from UNC Chapel Hill, I was eight weeks pregnant and I remember throwing up in the public restroom. I remember my vision kept going black that day and my legs were becoming numb. At this point, I was transferred to high risk at UNC Maternal Fetal Medicine. And let's be honest, there wasn't much that they could do for me besides up my dosage of promethazine. My POTS worsened, and when I say worsened, I mean I I could barely walk. By the end of the pregnancy, I could barely move at all. I had to use crutches, medication, compression hose, salts, fluid intake, nothing helped me. My legs were so numb, I blacked out constantly. I also had anemia. My doctor said he likes to see ferritin levels uh, between 300, or sorry, 30 and uh, 250, and my level was a three. Anemia made it so I could hardly move. I had zero energy all the time. And it's hard to describe the fatigue, but it was truly debilitating. All of these symptoms put together, the anemia, the POTS, the hyperemesis, mast cell, it was a nightmare. I would never take it back. I think the things that are most valuable in life are often the hardest things. And that goes for these pregnancies. My daughters are my world. I would never take it back. But they made it really freaking difficult on my body. I like to dream of escape every day. I was desperate to get out of my body. But it didn't take long to realize that escape was impossible. But there was no way out. I knew I was trapped and was going to be trapped for you know, like eight more months. So if I were to go into all of my pregnancy complications, I think this podcast would be over an hour long. I had what's very, very, very rare, an incarcerated uterus. I had postpartum preeclampsia. I had bleeding scares. I developed an allergic reaction to fetal cells invading my epithelial tissue. Yeah, I didn't even know something like that could exist. I also was on home health, and I required a nurse to come to my house three times a week for four hours each day to administer fluids and IV medications. Now, my second pregnancy was during COVID, so when the hyperemesis began again, and it began right away, just like it did the first time, We were in isolation, and this time I had a toddler to take care of. There was no more lying in bed or staying in the bathroom all day between throwing up. Now I had to change diapers, give baths, get her dressed, get her fed, take her on walks, teach her alphabet and colors. And this time we actually bought a house, and this time we had a house to live in. So there were all the regular household chores and duties that honestly fell by the wayside because all I could do was throw up.
There isn't much research done on hyperemesis and mast cell, but it turns out that there is definitely a link between the two. There is a misconception that when the mother is having hyperemesis and unable to keep any food or water down, the baby will still get what it needs from the mother no matter what. This is simply not true. The lack of nutrition and fluids can have a severe effect on the baby and actually cause what's, co what's commonly known as intrauterine growth restriction or IGUR. Intrauterine growth restriction is a very, very serious problem. It's basically failure to thrive in utero and you're officially, the baby is officially diagnosed within it, with it when they drop below the 10th percentile on the growth chart. During my first pregnancy, my hyperemesis was so bad, I wasn't gaining weight. I kept asking the doctor, is the baby getting enough food? How is the baby going to survive when I can't keep down anything? And the doctor assured me that the baby would get what it needs from my fat stores, from my muscle, from everything in me, including uh, iron, which is why I became so anemic. And that is partially true, but at a point, the baby actually starts to uh, decline as well. I'm not saying this happens with every hyperemesis case, but it does happen with, and hyperemesis is often the cause. So at 28 weeks, Nora Rose was measuring in the 30th percentile on the growth chart. At 30 weeks, she had dropped down to the 15th percentile on the growth chart. At 32 weeks, she had dropped to the 9th percentile. Her steep decline in growth was quite alarming. I did some research and discovered some harrowing facts, like the fact that IGUR is the second leading cause of perinatal mortality, and that the perinatal mortality rate for IGUR babies is 5 to 20 times higher than for a healthy baby. I also learned that the standard of care, according to the National Institute of Health, is to induce the mother when the baby's weight drops below the 10th percentile. Well, Nora dropped into the 9th percentile at 32 weeks, and I begged my do doctor to be induced. I brought him all the facts, I printed out the articles, and I asked him, can I please be induced? I'm worried that my daughter is not getting the proper nutrition, especially because now her growth is at 9% and typically babies need to be out of the womb in order to grow more if they drop below 10%. He didn't induce me. He didn't even talk about inducing me. In fact, he was adamant to keep the baby inside even though I was certain that the baby would grow much better on the outside at that point. Another fact I remember reading is that stillbirths, 30% of stillbirths are caused by IGUR. And this horrified me. I, all I could think, out was, think about was my baby, whether or not she was growing, whether or not she was okay. It kept me up every night. I became paranoid about counting kicks 
and whenever her kicks seemed to be slower, I freaked out. And she did arrive early. Uh, she came at 36 weeks. But when she was born, none of the doctors even knew she had IDUR. None of my health history during her pregnancy and none of her health history during the pregnancy had been sent over to the doctors that were going to deliver me. So no one knew anything. When she came out, she was purple, motionless, not crying, and just weak and bent over, looking like a motionless rag doll. She came at 36 weeks, and remember that at 32 weeks, she was at the ninth percentile. At 36 weeks when she was born, she didn't even make it to the first percentile. She was below the first percentile on the growth chart. She was not even on the growth chart. She came at four pounds, 10 ounces, and she had all of the symptoms that a typical IGUR baby would have, including jaundice, inability to feed, um, low, low blood sugar, and some other symptoms. She required some medical interventions and after an hour or two, they swept her away and she went immediately to the NICU where she stayed for three weeks. My second daughter, Judea, was in the NICU too. Their pregnancies were very similar, almost eerily similar. Like, I had a hyperemesis both pregnancies. Both of my girls were premature at 36 weeks. Both of them had feeding issues that landed them in the NICU. Although Nora had a whole host of physical issues when she was born because she had IGUR. Judea, despite the fact that I had hyperemesis my second pregnancy, Judea did not develop IGUR. Thank God. And so when she was born at 36 weeks, she weighed 5 pounds, 10 ounces, a whole pound more than Nora. And she was in the NICU purely for feeding issues. But she was in the NICU for six weeks, so double the time as Nora. The NICU is a whole different podcast I could do. But I just wanted to touch on a few more things. There was something called an incarcerated uterus that I dealt with, and this was during Nora's pregnancy. Um, I mentioned this because it is so very rare that hardly anyone knows anything about it, and that includes OBGYNs. My OB, in 35 years of medical practice, had only had two patients with an incarcerated uterus. So when I went to the Mayo Clinic a few years before I got pregnant, I learned that I had a retroverted uterus. And a retroverted uterus is actually a normal variant of the typical uterus, where the typical uterus faces forward towards your belly button, a retroverted uterus faces backward toward your spine. And having a retroverted uterus is not rare. About 30% of women have one, and it's not dangerous at all. But there is something that can happen um, during pregnancy if you have a retroverted uterus, and most people don't know about this at all. Um, and I don't want to scare people either because this complication is extremely rare. But what can happen during a pregnancy if you have a retroverted uterus um, is that sometimes the retroverted uterus uh, gets trapped in the abdomen and cannot grow. And it, it, a retroverted uterus by week 
10 through 12, um, you, it's supposed to flip forward like a regular uh, forward-facing uterus so that the baby has more room to grow and the placenta has more room to grow. If the uterus, if a retroverted uterus does not flip forward by the uh, 12th week of pregnancy, then what happens is it's called an incarcerated uterus or trapped uterus. And an incarcerated uterus is a very, very rare complication. It only occurs in 0.01% of women. That's not 1% of women. That's 0.01% of women. And my doctor had only seen it two times in his um, 30 years of medical practice, like I said. And when I did some research and learned about an incarcerated uterus... It was only because I was having some really weird symptoms. I was having pain whenever I urinated. I was having a fever for over a week. I was having um, the inability to pee. And my temperature control was just ridiculous. I could not stop sweating and then shivering and then sweating and then shivering. So I looked up all my symptoms and I happened to stumble across the term incarcerated uterus. I knew that I had a retroverted uterus, so at the 15-week um, ultrasound, I brought up to my doctor the fact that the technician uh, w that was doing the ultrasound told me my uterus was still retroverted. And at 15 weeks, I knew, I knew from all my research that my uterus had should have flipped forward by then. So I brought up this information to my doctor at the 15-week appointment and he reassured me that is extremely rare and you do not have an incarcerated uterus and logically I believed him emotionally I still thought that I had an incarcerated uterus all of my symptoms paired with the fact that my uterus was still in the retroverted position I had me very suspicious that the doctor just wasn't listening or wasn't doing enough enough to make sure it wasn't the cause. Well, what ended up happening is that the next week, that Tuesday, I uh, get a, got a call late at night, and it was my doctor. And he was the head of the, of the maternal fetal medicine clinic at UNC Chapel Hill. So he's a head, head, head guy there. And I would never have expected a call from him. I've never gotten a call from a doctor on my personal phone. Never. So I was like, whoa, what's going on? He said, we need you to come into the hospital tomorrow to get some more scans. I said, I asked him why. Um, and he said... Well, upon further review of your ultrasound images and your symptoms, I am a little concerned that you actually might have an incarcerated uterus. He told me um, a bunch of different exercises, like going on all fours and doing uh, cats to cow poses and a bunch of other exercises to try to get the baby to uh, push the uterus into the forward-facing position naturally. So I did these exercises that, that weekend, and um, the, the, my instruction was to do the exercises and then come back in that Monday for more scans. I did the exercises, 
really, I did them a lot. I was desperate to move the baby and move the uterus into the right position. But when I came in for my scans that Monday, my uterus was still in the retrograded position. So my doctor told me all of the information that he knew. He said that babies after the 20th week, if you have a retrograde uterus, um, babies after the 20th week have a a 33.33% chance of dying. And there is a significant risk to the mother for uh, bladder rupture. So this terrified me. And he said, you don't have to wait to the 20th week. Um, You don't have to wait for... um, for anything bad to happen, we, we can do a manual procedure, which is basically a procedure to move your uterus uh, while you are numbed, waist, waist down, and um, it actually can cause preterm labor and it can cause uterine rupture or otherwise damage your uterus. It can um, lead to the death of the baby but it was like picking one poison over the other. And my doctor had only performed this procedure twice in his 30 years plus worth of um, work, working in the medical field. Sorry, my brain fog is just bad. So I said, let's do the procedure. That weekend, I did as much research as I could on having an incarcerated uterus. And I tried to find information about the procedure, but there was absolutely no information out there. That's why I'm talking about this today, because this is such a poorly understood pregnancy complication, and hardly anyone knows about it. I've had people message me because they've been doing research themselves about the procedure, um, and they can't find any information as well. So I just try to spread the word about it as much as possible so that hopefully more and more people know about it and some people can get help sooner than I did. Um, the procedure, I, I could not find any information on the internet or in any, any books about having an incarcerated uterus it's so rare they didn't have a code for it in the hospital system they put it down as a cerclage but it wasn't a cerclage and the nurses were all confused and everybody was treating me really weird some people were like oh you're the one with the incarcerated uterus and people would just come in the room to ask me questions i knew it was a teaching hospital but i just didn't want all the attention And when they finally wheeled me back into the exam room, or not the exam room, but the um, quote-unquote operating room, um, there were at least 15 residents, students, doctors, nurses, 15 people in that room. And I felt rather exposed with nothing but a thin sheet between my legs. They gave me numbing injections in my lower back, and then they did the spinal tap and that shit hurt. I had never had an epidural before, so I had no idea what to expect. And um, after that, 
I don't really remember much about the procedure at all. They gave me a lot of anxiety medication, so I was pretty out of it. And all I remember is 20 minutes later, my doctor saying, Madison, we did it. And I still never learned <laughs> anything about that damn procedure. I still didn't know anything about it, whether or how they performed it. All I know is my doctor said that they chose a woman because she had smaller hands. I will tell you that I could not stop smiling once he said, Madison, we did it. I was so incredibly happy. And what ended up causing my uh, incarcerated uterus was actually years and years, decades of endometrial scarring um, that was acting like they were the scar tissue um, on the outside of my uterus was acting they would look like ropes they were acting like ropes um, that were so hard and um, in place from so many years of endometrial scarring that they were holding my uterus in place and they that's what was causing my uterus to not be able to grow so that was a little bit about my incarcerated uterus procedure. I will mention that after that, I was in a ton of pain for about a week and I was bleeding quite heavily too. So they put me on bed rest and I never really got off of it. It really takes being confined to a hospital bed for a few weeks or being confined to bed rest to really understand what it's like to be forced to live in basically one room for months at a time, unable to do much activity at all. In order to stay sane, I built several routines around my day. I would get up, I would take my medicine, get dressed, do my makeup, make my bed, check on the bird outside that had a nest and was uh, caring for her brand new baby chicks. I would do crossword puzzles, I would write, I would read, I would call friends, I would clean, I would do everything I could to keep my mind busy. I have some tips for if you're going through hyperemesis. Um, make sure that you get into the doctor and you explain your symptoms and the severity of your symptoms. Don't let the doctor just send you away without medication. Insist that the, your body does not feel normal, that things are very, very hard for you, and um, hopefully your doctor will give you some medication. There is even a patch that's used for patients undergoing chemotherapy, and they gave me this patch. And the patch and the medicine, promethazine and Zofran, were really the only things that gave me any relief. I know that bodies are all different, so that might not be the case for you if you're suffering from hyperemesis, but I thought I would just mention that. It's also worth mentioning um, that pregnancy with chronic illness can have a huge lasting impact on your body. Um, I wasn't really aware of this impact until recently. Um, and I also wanted to stress that pregnancy is a personal decision. People, people tell me all the time, it was selfish to have kids with your chronic illnesses. What if you passed down your illness to your kids? You should have adopted. And I've heard it all. 
and it doesn't really get easier just because you're used to hearing it. Uh, when I first became pregnant, both times people didn't congratulate me or meet my news with happiness or excitement. When I got pregnant with Jude, people couldn't believe she was planned. Everyone was worried and scared. Even though I was happy, no one was happy for me. There's the argument that I should not have had kids. There's the argument that I'm selfish. But whether it be dementia, mental illness, diabetes, or lactose intolerance, or something else, everyone inherits their parents' shit. Telling, somebody, telling someone they aren't worthy of having kids is just messed up. What arbitrary standard of perfection are we trying to achieve when we tell people with certain illnesses that their bodies are inadequate to procreate? And what it boils down to, I think, is choice. I don't care who you are or where you come from. I don't care how much money you have or how healthy you are. If you choose to have kids, that's your individual choice that you have every right to make. And let's not tell people how to grow their families either. Adoption is wonderful, but also a very personal choice. No one should push that choice on another human being. And if I didn't want to have kids, that would be my prerogative as well. And I would want people to respect that too. Sometimes being happy for other people isn't easy if we can't understand their choices. But whether or not you're you whether or not to be a parent, even if you're not sick, is one of the biggest decisions you can make. And most people don't take that decision lightly. So if you have a chronic illness and you're pregnant, do as much research as you can. Advocate for yourself at appointments. Be aware that the pregnancy might change your body long term. Be mindful of everything that you tell yourself. Mental toughness is so important to get through a difficult pregnancy. And if you're chronically ill wanting to get pregnant but scared of getting pregnant, I would tell you the same thing. Do as much research as you can, talk to your doctors and advocate for yourself and your future baby. Start enlisting your support team now. It can be made of doctors, therapists, friends, family, anyone. Having a village when raising a kid and being pregnant is one of the most important aspects. Pregnancy and chronic illness often don't mix. It's so important to have a support system for the days where you don't think you can go on, especially if you have another kid to take care of. But I don't want to scare anyone to get pregnant. My pregnancies were hell on earth, and I would never take it back. My kids give me more purpose to go on than any medicine ever has. They fill me with joy every day, the type of joy that you can't find just by listening to some good happy music or, you know, taking a walk outside. They give me joy deep, deep, deep down inside of me and of purpose and a will to keep on going. Being pregnant might really suck, but having kids can change your life forever for the better. So I would make this decision very carefully and listen to your intuition. Your mama instinct is there already. All you have to do is listen to it. Okay, Cameron, were you just as sick, less sick, or more sick while you were pregnant? I was actually undiagnosed at this point. They had been trying to actively figure out what was wrong with me for the two years prior to me getting pregnant. 
And it's actually a miracle that I did get pregnant because I was having my period every two weeks. So my pregnancy should not have stuck. Um, but I started getting sick in different ways. I developed hyperemesis gravidium. Um, I had swelling on the right side of my body, which they thought was a blood clot, but it wasn't. I had an abnormal EKG. I constantly had chest pain. Um, I got a really bad UTI and I'm not someone that's prone to UTIs, although I do have intercystitis cystitis. And that had me on antibiotics for 20 weeks, which was really difficult on my body. I remember I really struggled to work. And at the end, I had to take my pregnancy or rather maternity leave a couple weeks early because doctors told me that my body just could not handle working um, anymore um, and sitting in a chair for 40 hours a week. Um, so I guess it was a different kind of sick, um, but it did put a lot of my symptoms temporarily in remission. Um, and I don't know if that was hormonal or not because they were in remission, like until my daughter turned two for the most part or right before her second birthday. And I also nursed her for over a year. Um, so that might've come into play as well. Okay. Uh, harder pregnancies overall, um, or people with any illnesses. Um, but it's really scary when you know there's something wrong and you're not diagnosed and they kind of just brush it off or they'll tell you to go to the ER if you have chest pain or shortness of breath. And if it doesn't fit inside their box, then they're like, oh, you're fine. Go home. And that's definitely not always the case. So for me personally, my first pregnancy with my oldest was great. It actually got rid of all of my symptoms. I think I only puked once the entire pregnancy. Before I was pregnant, I was puking all the time. So it's really weird that when I was pregnant with him, with Jace, I felt really good. And even between pregnancies, I nursed Jace for about 14 months. And for some reason, that seemed to stabilize my hormones. And I had way less nausea and pain, even between kids. Once I got pregnant with Landon, it was a bit different. I didn't have pain. I didn't have any other symptoms other than HG, which is, like the other girl said, not easy at all. By the end, I was in the hospital every two days just to stay hydrated, so me and baby were both safe. We had multiple ultrasounds to make sure he was still growing, but overall, as soon as he was born, I felt better, like instantly that night could eat again. So it is really weird how it affects each of us differently, and each of our pregnancies affected our bodies in different ways. I just want to end this by thanking Maddie for sharing her story about her pregnancies. Maddie, I know that was not easy for you. You're a damn warrior and you inspire me all the time. Your girls are so lucky to have you and that you fought so hard for them because they are meant to be on this earth. And Cam, thanks for sharing your difficulties with your pregnancies as well. I hope you guys just 
took some tips away from this. If you're struggling with pregnancy, that's okay. It's sometimes it can be stigmatized that if we complain when we're pregnant, that it means we're not grateful for being able to get pregnant. And that's just not the case. For some people, pregnancy is really hard and you can still be struggling and be grateful every day for your child that's growing inside of you. That doesn't mean it's easy. It can be so hard, but you can persevere. You can get through it and there can be happy outcomes. And I just also want to let everyone who is struggling to get pregnant know that we feel for you. It must not be easy. We empathize. Keep fighting. Keep trying. If you just take care of you and let's all again just not judge each other for personal decisions. Everyone has their own path in life. Everyone has their own struggles. It's really no one else's business if you're chronically ill or not and get pregnant or not. That's between you and your partner and your doctors. So just trust your own instincts like sorry, like Maddie said. That's all you can do at the end of the day. Just like once you have a baby. I tell everyone, your mama instincts are the best instincts you'll ever have. So trust that. So I hope this was helpful and gave you some insight on how hard pregnancy can be with chronic illness. But also in my case, it made some of my illnesses better for the couple years with pregnancy and nursing. So there is hope, but again, that's a decision that has to be made between you and your medical team and your partner. And we are never here to judge. If you're struggling, if you're conflicted on what to do and want to ask us more questions personally, feel free to reach out to us at the trifecta2021 on Instagram, or you can email us at the trifecta2021 at gmail.com. We're always here to support you and listen to you and give you advice to the best of our abilities. We appreciate you all so much listening. We have, I think, four or five previous episodes. If you haven't checked those out, please do. You can find our podcast on Spotify. You can follow it, I believe, to get notifications of what our next podcast will be so just thanks again for being here thank you Cameron and Maddie for being on this journey with me as well we love you guys and we appreciate you all so much